I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is God's word. Father God, thank you for uh, the opportunity to just see so many faces tonight. It's, uh, it's really a, a big blessing to just see many people, part of our family, just coming out tonight uh, just to gather and worship. I pray that uh, you would prepare all of our hearts, even the one speaking right now, to receive the word that you have prepared, that it would uh, strengthen us in love um, for our brothers and sisters, but um, always, of course, Lord, our, our love for you, who is our, our redeemer and our uh, shield. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Before I get started, I want to share a quick story with you guys. This is a, short, a story that I heard a couple years ago that really affected me. There was a man <clears throat> who was walking and came upon uh, a bridge and at that bridge, there was another man who was standing over the edge who was thinking about jumping. And the man uh, who was walking upon it came up to this guy and said, dude, what are you doing? And the man said, no one loves me. And the guy said, God loves you. Don't you believe that? And the man said, I do. And he said, well, are you a, are you a Christian, Jewish, Muslim? And the man said, I'm a Christian. And he said, me too. Are you a Protestant or are you a Catholic? And he said, well, I'm a Protestant. The man said, me too. He said, uh, well, what denomination are you? He said, well, I'm a Baptist. The man said, me too. He said, well, are you a, a Southern Baptist or are you a Northern Baptist? He said, I'm a Northern Baptist. He said, me too. He said, well, are you a Northern Conservative Baptist or are you a Northern Liberal Baptist? And he said, oh, I'm a... I'm a northern conservative Baptist. And he said, me too. 
And he said, are you a Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or a Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? And he said, oh, I'm a Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. And he said, me too. And he said, are you a, gosh, this is where it gets really difficult. Um, Are you a Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1879 or a Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1912? And he said, I Since the day I was born, I'm a Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And the man said, heretic, and he pushed him over. (laughs) My mom used to say, John, Joel Osteen starts all of his sermons with a joke. You should do that. I don't, I don't. It's the first time. Maybe the last. Maybe the last. So listen, uh, through the course of the series that Andy and I have preached on, we've preached about love. And each week we've talked about a different group of people that is particularly difficult for us to love. We talked about the call on us as Christians to love unbelievers. We talked about the call for Christians to love those who are in need. We talked about loving political rivals. We talked about loving foreigners. We talked about loving outcasts. We talked about loving people who don't deserve love. We talked about loving cruel and selfish people. But I think that all of that was just the warm-up to what we're going to talk about today. I think today might be the final boss of the love series. It is the group that Christians have fought with, have slandered, have put down, have broken away from, have talked smack about, have refused to associate with for 2,000 years. And that group is other Christians. I just needed to, I just really wanted a visual for that. That's my only slide. I spent a lot of time looking for that slide. I was like, happy people, other Christians. So listen, let me, uh, let me break down some of the, uh, the background of the story that Shua read for us today. So we, we're back in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're back in Corinth, which if you guys were with us last week, that's the same book that we were in. And the book of 1 Corinthians, like much of the New Testament, is, uh, is a letter. It's a letter written from one of the significant leaders of the Christian church writing to a church that was kind of in a number of different issues. And if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, their laundry list of issues is, you know, a mile long. And there was a particular issue in this church that Paul is addressing in reference to how they're participating in the Lord's Supper, which again, if you guys are are regular attendees of here or even another church, the Lord's Supper should be something that rings a bell for you. Uh, Just to give a little bit of background, even though we do talk about it most weeks, uh, the Lord's Supper, which you guys can see right in front of us here, is a practice that the Christian church has used either weekly or in some form regularly for literally 2,000 years. You can go to a church that is Catholic in Minnesota in a rural community, and they will have a version of the Lord's Supper. And you can go to an underground church in China where they're hiding from the Chinese government, and they will most likely have a version of the Lord's Supper. It is a practice that is deeply rooted to our faith. 
And the significance of it is that through, our Lord, through the Lord's Supper, through eating some version of bread and some version of wine, we are remembering the most significant event in, our, in the history of our faith, which is the selfless sacrifice of Jesus, this tremendous act of love that has allowed for all the reconciliation and restoration of the cosmos. Our forgiveness comes through the sacrifice of Jesus. All reconciliation comes through the sacrifice of Jesus, and we remember that, and we receive that. Now, the church of Corinth, they were practicing the Lord's Supper as well. But they were practicing an interesting version of it, which was pretty common around early church time periods, where rather than just having a single piece of bread and maybe a little drip drop of wine, they would have a feast, and in their feast, they would come together and they would remember the great love of Jesus. And this feast was structured like a potluck. So, you know, people would bring pots of food and they would gather them all together. And then once they had their service and they sang their songs, they would eat in this, in this beautiful feast and they would remember the abundant love of God that we experience every day. The problem was that in Corinth at this time, there was a significant population of wealthy Christians in this church, and there was a population of the poor and the needy. And what was happening was the wealthy were bringing like just massive amounts of food. I imagine like fancy food too, like Cornish hens and, you know, whatever, whatever cool side dish, probably cranberry sauce year round, not just Thanksgiving. Um, but they would come and they would bring all this food together. But then when they would have the feast, what was happening was the wealthy would rush to the front of the line. They would gorge themselves on food, like literally like eat to excess. Paul says they were literally getting drunk. So they were drinking, just knocking back wine and just stuffing their bellies with food. Literally to the point to where the poor in that community we're going away hungry. And when you think about it, how embarrassing, how shameful is it that at a time when the church, when the people of God were supposed to gather to remember the selfless and loving gift of God, they were using that to be selfish, to take from those who were needy, and to build themselves up rather than to celebrate as a community. And as you can imagine, Paul was incensed about this. He uses, I think, some of the strongest language in any of his letters in the entire Bible, right here in this passage. It's heavy what he's talking about. That these people, in a moment of worship, would so willfully neglect and mistreat the people right next to them. And here's the thing, it's, it's worth pointing this out. This is by no means the first or last time in the New Testament or even in the Bible when someone is calling out a conflict that exists within the church. If you read through the New Testament, just the letters that I was referencing, you'll run into issues where there were Jewish Christians who had issues with Gentile Christians and they did not get along. 
you'll see issues where mature, seasoned, wise Christians did not want to deal with the weak consciences of their less mature brothers and sisters, and they had conflict. You'll see issues where older Christians who were just wiser and had more years were mistreating younger Christians just because they didn't have the experience that they had gathered. There's always something. There's always something. It's as if the Spirit of God was saying, listen, after enough time, every community is going to eventually start to implode. It's going to eventually start to harm itself. Sin gets in the way. Bias gets in the way. And we just start to rip, tear, and shred at the fabric that God himself put together. But what he's saying is that we are the family of God. We've been blessed literally with a supernatural love from God to share with those around us, which means that there is going to be a higher burden of love that we should be sharing. And when he looked at this church in Corinth, where they were literally filling their bellies and neglecting the poor, it was very clear that their worship was being compromised by the way that they treated the people around them. And we could say that this passage is about, you know, how wealthy Christians and poor Christians should get along. And that wouldn't be wrong, but that wouldn't be what this passage is really saying. And we could say that it's about how, uh, you know, the, the, the wealthy should be more generous to the poor. And that is also very true. But it's not what this is saying. What this is saying is that every community left to its own devices will start to harm itself. But as Christians, we aren't just called to offer a heart of love to God. We are called to love our brothers and sisters across all number of divides. I mean, many of us already know this, right? It's a lot harder to love the people who are close to us, whether it's our families or even our really, really close friends. Sometimes they're the hardest people to love. You can love a cashier at Quick Trip that you talk to for 12 seconds. It's not hard to show self-sacrificial love to someone who you just give $5 to. It's a lot harder when you're in something more long-term. And so it's also worth just pointing out that the Corinthians were a Greek church and Greeks culturally didn't have a great opinion of the poor. They had a tendency to look down on them, to think that they were lesser. Maybe they didn't work as hard. Maybe they were lazy. Yeah, we can see a number of parallels in, in our own society too. So rather than just hyper fixate on this one divide between the poor and the wealthy, I want to I encourage us to examine our hearts as Paul was saying, not asking yourself, do you have problems with poor people in church or do you have problems with wealthy people in church? But who do you have a problem with? Who walks through the door and makes you wish they weren't here? It could be someone who comes from a certain group that you don't love or associate with. And it could also be someone that you just have a personal conflict with. But we need to examine that in ourselves. 
Now, take a pause real quick. When I look at mission, our church, this wonderful group of people that we have here, I think that we have to ask ourselves, who are the Christians, whether in this building or worshiping across the street from us or across the city from us, that we would be more likely to take issue with? Now, I think that here at Mission, we, we almost like take pride in our nonchalant attitude in certain regards. Like, for example, I'm wearing joggers and a very wrinkled shirt, and I just beat the heck out of my mic. Like, no one, no one gave me a side eye for not wearing a suit today. I, my Bible is, is very small and hidden. I don't have a large one just cracked open for the world to see. No one called me out for that. And I'm not saying that's bad. That's, that's our church. This is how we approach certain cultural things. But if we were to cross paths with someone who was very much the three-piece suit wearing to church, even when it's 105 degrees outside, with the hefty leather-bound King James Version Bible under their arm, do we hesitate to see this person as a part of our family in Christ? Is there a, is there a hesitation there? I mean, a lot of us find ourselves in a place where there were things that maybe represented our church background growing up that we're kind of distancing ourselves from. Well, what happens when the guy that you're crossing paths with or the person who visits our church or Lord forbid, the person that's church you're visiting looks just like the things that you wish you didn't have to associate with in the faith anymore? I think a great way to ask this is if you guys were out of town and couldn't find a church that looked like a mission duplicate, do you just not go to church? Do you just not gather with God's people who you would say, if you were asked, were part of your theological family and, you know, connected with you through the blood of Jesus and, and actually more truly connected to you than even your own blood family, but you won't spend an hour and a half when you're uh, hanging out in Toledo. I don't know why you'd be in Toledo. Shout out to Toledo. I hope they're doing okay up there. Or let me ask you this. If I asked you to write down a list of 10 things that you believe are wrong with the American church, and somebody walks through the door who looks just like points one through seven, how does that affect how you look at this person? Would you share a space at the Lord's Supper with them? If they asked you to pray for them or with them, would you do so genuinely or would you kind of put on a little bit of an act so they would just get out of your hair? I think we have to ask these questions. Now, the response that Paul is offering and the response that we see beautifully put throughout the narrative of the Bible is that the gospel is the great equalizer. 
The gospel is the great equalizer. Across the board of the gospel, regardless of the background that you come from, you are not seen as greater or lesser than in the eyes of God once we have been truly affected by the love of Jesus. And that's a wonderful thing. You know, people love to use this verse, which kind of drives me crazy because people tend to misuse it. But the, the verse from Galatians, it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither male nor female. There is neither slave nor free. You know, people use that to be like, see, you shouldn't uh, talk about race at all anymore. It's like, that's not the point. Gosh, dang it. But the, what, what it's saying is, look, if your parents were Greek, <laughs> you're Greek. And that's cool. That's fine. If you're a woman, if you're a man, like if you're uh, in a certain tax bracket, that, that is who you are. But it's not your truest, fullest identity by any means. When we say that there is no Jew or Greek or male or female, etc., it's saying that Jesus has given us an identity that is completely above anything else we could use to identify ourselves, which means that they were on equal playing fields. What Paul was saying when he said that was, all of the conflict that exists between each group I'm going to mention, it dies. So if you're a Jewish Christian 2,000 years ago, and you've got a Greek Christian 2,000 years ago who normally would not even associate with each other, the gospel says, no, you're brothers and sisters now. So the division between you is torn away. It's gone. That's what it means that we have this great equalizing presence in the gospel. It's saying that Jesus doesn't only give us an identity that transcends our humanity. He gives us an identity that restores our humanity. So all the generations and centuries of mistreatment I think one of the most powerful phrases here is, is the neither male nor female. Females got the raw end of the deal for hundreds of years, thousands of years. What Paul's saying right here is, listen, you're a Christian now, husband. Your wife is a Christian now. You don't get to treat her poorly anymore. The conflict and the pain and the oppression that used to exist between these groups is gone now once you profess Christ because that's who you are, a Christian first and foremost. And the people in Corinth had neglected this. The wealthy still saw themselves as wealthy above all and they saw themselves as entitled to what they wanted to receive and that's why they justified what they were doing. And I think the painful thing here is when we look at the language that Paul is using, he's saying, look, if you're coming to a place of worship, whether it's the Lord's Supper, whether it's church, regardless, if you're coming to a place of worship and your mentality is you're entirely focused on God, but you're neglecting, mistreating, resenting the people around you, your worship is not worship. It's lost its flavor. The, 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 the concept of love is both vertical and also horizontal. If we 
are, if, if, and, I, and I know that, like, if, if you come to church and you're like, all right, God, this is me and you time, man. This is me and you. We're just chatting. I'm singing my songs to you. I'm hearing your word. This is it. And then the people over here are just white noise. That's wrong. There's a reason we're not all sitting in our closets right now. There's a reason that we're gathered here together as a family. Now, there's a, there's a verse in this passage that I do want to give a little bit of special attention to because it's commonly uh, misunderstood and has historically scared people away from taking the Lord's Supper. And it's, this, and it's this verse where it says, for the one who eats and drinks, if he does not recognize the body, eats and drinks judgment against himself. Now, I remember going to the church that I grew up in um, we would do communion every first Sunday. And my pastor would not give a lick of context to any of these passages. He would just read them aloud. And I remember that idea of eating and drinking judgment against myself was like this, tr like this thorn of fear that just lived in my heart for forever. Like when I became a Christian, I was like, I don't know if I can take communion today. <laughs> I think there's something wrong. There's something. And I, I legitimately had this fear that like, if I poke the bear and take communion when I'm not supposed to, that a trap door is going to open up beneath me and the earth is going to swallow me whole. That like my soul was, was done. I, I legitimately thought that. And I don't think I'm alone in that. So the truth behind the passage is uh, good news, but it's also not great news. Sorry. The good news is that when we look at the word judgment in this passage, it's not eternal judgment. So this is not eating and drinking damnation. You're not, you know, throwing your soul into the fiery dumpster forever for not taking the worship of God seriously, which, hey, this is great. But also the bad news is that it is, unfortunately, still judgment. Literally, the, the, the verse right after it says, for this same reason, many among you are weak and sick and some even dead. Like Paul is saying, look, you're not gonna throw, you're not gonna cast your soul out of God's loving care if you don't take worship seriously and how you love and treat the people around you, but it is not something you should play with. It is something that the Bible says right here, God could make some things in life less fun because of. And it's also worth remembering that God doesn't discipline us out of anger, out of spite, or just to be vindictive. It's out of love. But God will lovingly judge someone who is dancing up to a place of worship and neglecting and hurting and hating the people around them because he takes that seriously because he takes the people that we are mistreating very seriously. I, I used this, this, uh, this phrase earlier about ver vertical and horizontal love. The thing is, worship that is only vertical and not horizontal is neither. It is no longer worship. So I'll tell, a, I'll tell a story real quick. I, 
threw this story in for a little bit of relief because this is kind of a heavy sermon, but we, we're going to move on. So uh, a couple years ago, I was in Detroit visiting my uh, family up there. That's where my uh, sister Tava lives, so a handful of you guys got to meet at the wedding a few months ago. Uh, Tava's a very dynamic character. And, uh, and so we love to have big family gatherings out there. And because my family's from the South, even though Detroit is, of course, not in the South, we always have big Southern dishes whenever we're there. And so my sister made a crawfish etouffee, which is like this super creamy, rich, like delicious, like stew with crawfish as the meat. It's, it's amazing. It's delicious. You won't find it anywhere in town, unfortunately. Stew sounds terrible for soul food, but we move on. Um, so Tava made this delicious meal, and I was feeling bad because I'd been the guest there for a couple days. I hadn't made anything. I hadn't really offered to help out. So I said, hey, Tav, let me, uh, you know, we're almost out of rice we got more family coming. Let me make, let me make some rice just, as, just to do something to contribute. And, uh, and at this point in my life, I was at the prime of my rice-making game, dude. Like, I could, I could put rice on the stove, and I could go. I could, I could drive somewhere, come back, and the rice would be perfect, fluffy, just amazing. I, I, was, I was hardly even washing the rice back then because I was so confident. I was just killing the rice game 100%. But... At, in Detroit that night, some evil spirit, man, just completely infected the rice. And I made the worst rice I'd ever made in my life. And I, I kept trying to salvage it where I would take the lid off and add like, a little bit more water and put it back on the stove. And it, it just, it made it like gummy and starchy and terrible. And it was, it was awful. And it was embarrassing because I was like, gosh, dang, I'm trying to support my family here. I'm trying to help the fam. And I just made this junk. And my sister Tava, who again, if you guys remember her from the wedding, those of you who, uh, who went uh, probably remember her, her very unique cadence. But she looked at me in the eyes and she said, John, none of Velma Johnson. And Velma Johnson's my, my grandmother who passed away. Rest in peace. Her, anyone in my family referencing Velma Johnson is like a Catholic referencing the Virgin Mary. It's like <laughs> we're going up to the matriarch here. But my sister said, John, none of Velma Johnson's grandbabies will be making nasty gummy rice. And she threw it all in the trash. And, uh, and then she made rice herself. And she never let me live it down. And I will never make a single grain of rice for my sister to eat because the trust is completely gone. <laughs> and so I say that to say this. The Corinthians during this time were coming together for the highest act of worship a Christian could do to come and remember and receive the love and gift of Jesus. And rather than remember such a great love, such a great redemptive gift, it was turned into a celebration of cliques and friends and selfishness and filling your stomachs. And the worship was lost. The idea of worship was completely dried up. It was dry, starchy, gummy rice that was thrown away. And so I want to I wanna say all of that, all the heavy stuff to, uh, to kind of bring us back with this. Now, I don't want anyone to spiral from here and say, well, shoot, it seems like God takes this stuff pretty seriously. Maybe I should just be hands off. I don't want to make God mad. I don't want to be weak or get sick or anything like that. Maybe I should just take a step back and, 
and not, not bother. And I want to say, no, don't do that. Here's my encouragement for you. I have good news, I have better news, and I have the best news. The good news is this. God doesn't expect perfect love from us. He doesn't. And it'd be cruel if he did because we can't. We can't love perfectly. That is just the basic entry-level understanding of sin in our lives. We can't love perfectly. Guys, I can't love myself perfectly. And I love me some me. I do. But I can't. I couldn't love myself perfectly if I tried. I can't love my wife perfectly. I can't love my friends perfectly. I couldn't love my dog perfectly, let alone God, let alone the people around me. My love is always going to be imperfect. So God doesn't expect us to have a love that is perfect. The better news is that Paul isn't saying, hey, Losers, perfect your love for the poor and for the person you don't like in your community. He's not saying that. What he's literally saying is, examine yourself. Take the time in silence and listen to your own heart. One of my favorite quotes from Charles Spurgeon, this cool old English bearded dude, was the most important book any person will ever read is their own heart. If you're trying not to be cavalier about worship or about life in general, that's amazing. But the response to that is reflect, think, listen. Hear the feelings and actions and motivations of your heart, especially when you think that it's probably on the messy side. What I think we often do is we're willing to kind of reflect on the things in ourselves when we're trying to understand our motives and, you know, we love taking personality tests to get a better idea for what makes us do the things that we do. But whenever we get to something that looks bad, whenever we have to clean the room in our hearts where we can smell it from the outside, we just leave it. And Paul's saying, don't do that. You don't need to be perfect. You can't. But reflect, listen, think, examine yourself. And where you see your love to be shortcoming, say it out loud. Come to God and say, man, God, I, I, I don't like this guy. In fact, I don't like all types of this guy in my life. I do tense up when this type of person comes around, especially at church, because church is really important to me. Be honest enough to have that conversation with God and with yourself, because that's what God asks of us, not perfection, but that we would have a humble confession and a willingness to let him change us and help us. So I said, I said the good news, I said the better news. Here's the best news. The love that we struggle to give so imperfectly is a reflection of the love that we receive perfectly. The love that we are called to give imperfectly is a reflection of the love that we receive perfectly. Like, it, it, it sounds like cliche, like it overdone to end a sermon on God loves you, God loves us. But 
gee whiz, like, I, I, if, I don't know if there's any other place we can really lay our heads at the end of the day. I don't know if there's really any other foundation to our existence aside from the idea that God loves us with a perfect love, that God is fully committed to us even as we continue to not even become close to worthy of him, that God says he's gonna finish the work that he started in us. We've gotta keep up, not with perfection, but with honesty. Honesty about our shortcomings, a willingness to let him, to open up and let him fix what's messed up. But the anchor for that is the love that he has. Guys, if we took all of the loves that we'd ever experienced in our lives, every moment where we ever felt genuinely loved, every person in our lives who we felt deeply loved us, whether it was the love of a parent or the love of a nice dog who just knew where to be and when to be there. If we stacked each and every one of those loves on top of each other, they wouldn't make a fraction of a fraction of the love of God. It'd be a penny standing by a skyscraper. The love of God is our hope and it is our joy and it should be our call and our motivation to love each other even when it's tricky. All right, Uh, pray with me, please. Father in heaven, we thank you for, I don't know, a lot of stuff. We thank you for your love and your kindness over us, Lord. We thank you for um, this church. God, there, there is something so beautiful in that the church is a place where there should be a tremendous diversity in how we gather. The, the, the tricky thing is it's going to make us face the issues that we have. If, if someone's got beef with poor people and they see poor people in the church, they're going to have to face that problem head on. But Lord, we pray that by your grace and by your strength, we would be able to be honest with ourselves. That when we do come to the Lord's table to celebrate you, that we would celebrate you with a love that we give to you and also that we offer to our brothers and sisters, no matter how strained no matter how difficult. Um, You are our only hope in all of this, God, so please help us. Uh, I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what we're gonna do now, we're gonna worship in three ways. Uh, The first is through giving. We have a tablet in the back, right behind the back row. We encourage, uh, not just as a church, but we encourage as believers, uh, generous and joyful giving. Uh, that allows us to keep doing what we're doing as beacons of light uh, that we're trying not to put a lampshade over. Um, The second is singing, which means Mike and the band are gonna come back up and they're gonna lead us in musical worship. And the last is kind of the guest of honor for this sermon, which is the Lord's Supper. And uh, I, I would hope that given everything that we discussed, that you do feel a little bit more comfortable as we take this two minutes of silence to really genuinely reflect. And, you know, I say this whenever I pray before our confession that uh, I think one of the reasons we struggle with honest reflection is that we're afraid that once we see the real true pile of garbage that exists in many of our hearts, who am I kidding, in all of our hearts, that we think, oh, I'm unlovable then. Like, what, what can I do with this? But what we see in scripture and what we see of God is that he promises that when we 
confess to him he is faithful to forgive and wash all of our sins completely clean. And so, yeah, I would, uh, I would encourage um, a really meaningful confession today. And then, uh, and then that as you walk in that forgiveness that God and that Christ offers, that you would come and enjoy the Lord's Supper. Receive the, uh, the blessing of Jesus as we remember his great gift to all of us. So, yeah, so I'm gonna pray. And then we'll have two minutes of silence uh, for you guys to pray yourselves. And then we will, uh, and then we'll, Michael, start singing and we'll do the Lord's Supper. Father God, um, Lord, as we, as we often say, um, we are not worthy of you. We couldn't be if we tried. Uh, and we do try. Um, Lord, this week, this day, this hour has been full of um, doing the things that we shouldn't have and not doing the things that we should have. But Lord, we don't want to create an opportunity for Satan to give us contempt or to make us resent ourselves, but we just want to be honest and admit and acknowledge the ways that we are not loving you and the ways that we are not loving others well, the way that we're failing our vertical love and our horizontal love. And as we accept that and acknowledge it, God, we pray that you would walk with us in repentance. Give us the strength that we need, please. And more, and more than anything, remind us that we are loved, that we are cared for, that we are yours, that we are unsnatchable, that we are secure within you. And uh, so, yeah, God, please, please help us to pray right now.